0: Everyone, this is the Change Log. And I'm your host, Adam Stukoviac. This is episode 148. And on today's show, we're joined by Andrew Duran. Andrew works on the Go programming language at Google. You might remember him from back in episode 100 with Rob Pike. This show, we're talking about the state of Go in 2015. Great conversation today with Andrew. We also had some awesome sponsors for the show: CodeShip, TopTal, and DigitalOcean. We'll tell you a bit more about Top Talent devotion later in the show, but our friends at Codeship released a brand new feature called Parallel CI. We're super excited about it. They're super excited about it. And you should be too because now you can deploy your code to production 10 times faster. If you want faster tests, you have to run your builds in Parallel. With Parallel CI, you can now split up your test commands into up to 10 test pipelines. This lets you run your code and your test suite in Parallel and drastically reduce the time it takes to run your code. They integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket, and you can deploy to cloud services like Roku, AWS, and many more. Get started today by their by check out their free plan. It includes 100 builds a month and five private projects. Or you can use our offer code. It's the Change Law Podcast to get 20 percent discount on any plan you choose for three months. Again, that code is the Change Law Podcast. Head to CodeShip.com/slash the Change Law to get started. And now onto the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We got Andrew Duran on, on the call today. Andrew, how are you?
1: Hey, good. Great.
0: Andrew, we're uh, we're flying solo today. We have no Jared with us. So for longtime listeners of the show, you're going to miss Jared on the show. I, I hope you miss him, but not so badly that you don't like the show. So, <laughs> Right? And I think the last time you were on the show, uh, Jared wasn't even a co-host on the show yet. Aaron, uh, Andrew was uh, co-hosting with me, and I think he did episode 100 with you and Rob. Totally solo, so that's that's kind of cool too. Almost, yeah. almost 50 shows ago, man. Wow.
1: Hard to believe. Uh,
0: I'm sure you're excited to be back though, right? This is uh, yeah, it's great. one it's of your great, favorite yeah. podcasts, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course it is. That's how you respond. Oh, yeah, of course. Of great. Course I love it. Right. Okay, guys. Gotcha. No, I don't listen
1: to a lot of, a lot of podcasts. So,
0: so uh... Not- for the listeners if if you're not familiar with who Andrew is, Andrew works on the go programming language uh aka golang or uh, you know, uh that's that's kind of, kind of how you say it i guess um
1: yeah we just call it go go okay not not, yeah. not although golang. apparently my accent ex- i can't say it in correctly because of my accent um maybe you should cut that out
0: <laughs> no go ahead say it one more time nice and clear
1: well i say i say go. Um, well, you got the I awesome
0: get... Australian accent, right? So,
1: yeah, awesome slash ridiculous. Uh, I,
0: <laughs> I think it's awesome. I mean,
1: I, I'm glad. <laughs> I kind of
0: wish I had that accent sometimes. Not all the time, but man, there there are some really cool Australian accents out there. That I mean, y'all have the same accent to a degree, but there are just some that sound better than others.
1: So, I'm a yeah, I'm well, a fan. Sometimes people in Australia think that I'm not Australian because. I guess I spend a lot of time speaking to international audiences. Uh-huh. And so I sort of round out my accent a little bit, right. but then it just makes me sound weird to everyone. That's so true. I don't know whether I'm seeing the benefits or not. That's it.
0: Well, you hail from, as we said, Australia. So you work at Google Sydney and in yep. the pre-call, I asked you a question that we had to pull into the show because I just thought your answer was pretty neat. But uh, just for some, some, uh, you know, background, you know, what's different about Google Sydney than like plain old Google?
1: Google Sydney is definitely part of plain old Google. It's not a separate entity or anything like that. I mean Google has tens or probably hundreds of offices around the world um probably like tens of large engineering offices um, and Google Sydney is one of the largest Google offices outside of you know Mountain View the headquarters. but Google Sydney is kind of cool because um it has a long history at google it's one of the one of the first overseas engineering offices. And the story behind it is kind of interesting because the team that built the product um, that became Google Maps, so it was a a company outside of Google that built it and they sold the technology to Google and they they also joined Google when they sold it. And so the the people who built that original, basically like a Maps prototype, they um, became the first employees of Google Sydney, more or less. And There's a lot more detail in there, but that's that's basically the story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, th- I think Maps is is one of the major ways in which Google has affected the world. You know, search is the first one, and then I would say, like for me personally, Maps was the the second big revelation. That not I, I I've only been a Google for five years, so it has nothing to do with me. But it was one of the things that really impressed me about Google. And so I think it's cool that you know Sydney and Google Sydney was sort of the birthplace of that.
0: You said you've been with Google five years now, so that's almost the, the age of Go.
1: Yeah, well, I joined Google and the Go team a couple of weeks after, uh, sorry, a couple of months after Go was released.
0: When so was that? What month was that?
1: That was, I started at the start of February 2010, Okay, and Go was released in November 2009.
0: That's so crazy because that is our birthday. The changelog was born November 19th, 2009.
1: Right. We'll go with November 10. So we're a little bit older. Right. Slightly older. That's it's <laughs> yeah. funny
0: because our third show was with Rob Pike. Oh, really? Yeah, our third show. Wow. Um, so yeah, we, three,
1: 101.48.
0: We covered Go super early. And, uh, you know, when we say fresh and new and open source, we mean it. So, episode <laughs> number three, com slash three, is a show to listen to. This is way back in the day, too. So, if you want to get nostalgic, uh listeners of this show, longtime fans of this show, go back and listen to that show and hear the difference in audio quality. <laughs> this is this is like look this is the you know the version of a developer going back and looking at looking at code that's five years old. You yeah. know? Not a great conversation, but the <laughs> you know our production value is a lot different then. Wynn and I, when netherland now he hacks on uh the Google, or the uh the GitHub API, but we were so fresh and green with podcasting i think then it was just it was a different landscape but this was before it was cool too you know so was a different world <laughs> you know well,
1: podcasting is cool now didn't you hear <laughs> i'm not even kidding i'm not even kidding yeah actually i must admit i have been thinking about recording my own podcast see um yeah i think it'd be cool <laughs> to actually have a podcast where i interview people in the go community and talk to them about what they're doing and what they think and so on.
0: I don't disagree. I don't yeah. disagree. I think you should do it and I'm going to encourage you to do it. Yeah. Um, in fact, we may even be able to help you.
1: Oh, we um, can talk about that later.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's definitely earmark that conversation. But so a year and a half ago, so we, we've been talking about the past a little bit in preparation for talking about today and the future, but a year and a half ago, episode 100, you were on the show with Rob. You guys talked deeply about the history and the details of the language uh, simplicity, concurrency, productivity—it's not just a systems language. Just sort of just giving a rough summary of some of the things that I pulled out there. Um, but recently in February, you gave a a talk at—is uh, it Fosdem or is it FOSDEM?
1: I guess it's—if you're pronouncing it in Australian accent, it's Fosdem because we pronounce okay. all s's like z's. Um, right. But it's probably FOSDEM.
0: Okay, I'm gonna go with—I'm gonna go with either. I, I don't <laughs> know, Fosdem. I'll say FOSDEM. Because it seems like, uh, well, we had the same uh, conundrum with uh, OSCON. Is it OSCON or is it OSCON? See, See? you probably say OSCON, right? I say OSCON. See? Now, I would always say OSCON as well, but even Jared, myself, and uh, who was it uh, that was on the show that time? Someone from Facebook, and I can't remember her name right now. It's it's, uh, upsetting me. But anyways, we couldn't figure it out either. So... You talked about the state of Go at FOSDEM. Uh, it's basically the OSCON, speaking of OSCON, the OSCON of, uh, of Europe, basically, right? That's, that's what that conference yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, I actually,
1: I think, not to say anything bad about OSCON, I, I quite like OSCON as a conference, but FOSDEM is almost something else. It's, it's an amazing community-driven conference that's totally non-commercial. It's hosted at a university. But the really remarkable part is it used to, it used to have an emphasis on like the main track, Talks, which were curated by the conference organizers, um, okay. but they had these things known as dev rooms, where people in the community could register mm-hmm. interest in running a dev room, and basically that means that they would get a day, and a room, and some equipment, and they could run their own thing there. And like it was, they called dev rooms because originally it was like, you know, all the people working on like OpenStep, for instance, would get together and they would talk about, all right, well, what are we going to work on over the next year? And maybe they'd even get some hacking done, or some like API design, or something like that. And then gradually, the emphasis has really shifted over to these dev rooms, and they've now become like curated mini conferences inside the greater conference. And so all the action actually happens at these dev rooms.
0: And the dev rooms, yeah, you yeah. Think
1: right. And so, like, I the last couple of years, I've organized the Go Dev Room and curated, you know, speakers from the Go community to talk about Go stuff. And um, wow. so it's it's. It's really awesome in that it's it's just totally grassroots, totally community driven. Um, it's very very much a free conference. It's free to attend, and you know it's very sort of democratic in a way. And so I feel like more than any other conference I've been involved with, FOSDEM really embodies like the spirit of the open source community.
0: Well, we have a weekly email we ship out on Saturdays, and I am going to link up all of the the playlists that you linked out on um on yeah, Twitter. Great. I think it was a couple of weeks back or something like that, maybe a month back or something like that. So all of the dev devrim talk at FOSDAM is gonna be in our weekly email this Saturday. So um we're recording this on a Wednesday and actually the day uh I don't usually timestamp stamp these, but March eighteenth. This show won't go live until the twenty seventh of March, just so you know. And everybody else listening. So it's the twenty seventh or after. If you're a member, you're listening live potentially. But today's March twenty eighth. That's when we're recording this. Um. So we'll actually link that up this Saturday, which will be before this. And uh, you know, I, I blew somebody somebody's mind away whenever uh, I was like, "We're recording this in the future, and you're listening to this in the past." It's because it's kind of how the podcast <laughs> is, right? We list we record it in the past, and you listen in the future. It, it's kind of <laughs> all jacked up, uh, unless you're actually listening live. But anyways, the so the state of go them. You know, you mentioned you've been running that room for the last couple of years. What are some of the things you've seen happen over the last couple of years running that room around the Go community?
1: Well, you know, with regard to the room specifically, I mean, it's just we've just seen some a lot of great talks from people. Particularly at the end of the day, we tend to do lightning talks, and people can sign up for the lightning talks on the day. And you know, it's it's really it's really fun to see people just pull out like their Fun little projects that they've been hacking on, you know, things that they would never really bother submitting, like a full-scale conference talk. Um, but you know, for instance, at the at the conference this year, we saw a guy presented his um, he wrote a like a backup system in Go, and he, he was fairly serious about it. And so it was it was actually quite a nice, solid product that he produced. Another guy showed this really bizarre thing called a, a Fantoscope. I think, hmm. which is like a, an old-school way of producing moving images um, by sort of uh, – it's probably too difficult for me to explain. Uh, you'll have to <laughs> Google it. But You need a visual. It was, it was a visual thing. It was kind of wild. It was pretty unexpected. Um, so
0: do you have the past years on video then? Yeah,
1: yeah. So the playlist includes the, um, the lightning talks, and all of the lightning talks are, are in the YouTube video description. We have the timestamps of when each of the talks begins. so you can skip through them. Awesome. Um, So definitely check them out. Actually, last year there was a great one from one of our contributors, a guy called Remy Urumfang, who's who's a a French guy who's been off and on contributing to the compiler and and runtime. Very smart guy. But he just, I kind of like, me and Brad pushed him throughout the day to like, you should give a talk, Remy, come on. And um, he was pretty shy, but he ended up writing this talk, like why you should contribute to Go. Um, Mm. And it was a really nice little that'll talk about why it's nice to work on the Go project, which resonated with me at least.
0: You know, I got sort of an, an off question, I guess, before we actually dig into the state of Go. Mm. But we just had a conversation about Phoenix and Elixir. Phoenix Web, web Framework and Elixir built on top of the Erlang mm. uh, VM. And one of the one of the pieces of that conversation that stuck out to me was the concurrency. And it talked about how... um erlang had been doing concurrency for years you know they saw this problem 20 years ago and i hear a lot and i've heard a lot over the last year and a half since the last time i've been on the show about go and concurrency and and that in that direction what is it about go in comparison to say like java which you're planning to supplant and languages like erlang or even elixir how do you how does go uh compete with or what is the landscape like in comparison to those other languages that, that are concurrent as well?
1: There's a, there's a lot in that question. It's, it's, it's quite a, a deep topic. But I think what Erlang gives you, an Elixir as well, is this environment in which to build distributed concurrent systems, or maybe concurrent systems. And you know, it's very much baked into like every part of... Working with those languages is—you think about concurrency and message passing and so on. At least that's my understanding. I don't have a lot of experience with them. Yeah, um, but
0: that's, that's how I took it as well.
1: Yeah, but with Go, um, concurrency is always there. You can always use it, use the concurrency features um, when you want to do something that involves concurrency. So it's we provide really nice tools for like modeling concurrent processes, but it's it's not uncommon to write Go programs that use no concurrency at all. You know, you don't have to use those tools or think in that mindset if it's not appropriate for what you're doing. Like if you're just if you're writing a tool to open a text file process a whole bunch of lines and compute something and print the output, you know, you, concurrency is not really appropriate. It's an inherently serial process. Um, so you don't need the tools if they're not there. Uh, if if they're not necessary. But there's that aspect, there's also the aspect that Go is still very much you know, an imperative programming language. It's not a functional programming language. Um, So it's a lot more familiar to most programmers. And the model in which you're running Go programs is also familiar. You know, you you write a Go program that runs as a process and then that process may talk to other processes, but there's no sort of infrastructure to manage those processes or pass messages between them or anything. None of that's baked into the language unlike erlang which is gives you that entire framework for doing that and so with go it's it's very much like you program with concurrency assuming that you are operating inside a single process and so you know like if you send a message um, o- across the channel and it's received by some other go routine in the process like you know if you're still executing then that other go routine must still be executing like if the program hasn't crashed then the program yeah. is still running and so it's actually, even though there are parallels you can draw between the way you write code in Erlang and the way you write my, my, the way you might write code in Go, you can't really compare them. They're actually very, very different approaches.
0: I see. I was, you know, when I was um, on that call, I was thinking, hey, Angel's gonna be on the show. I, I should talk to him about this because I don't, I, I don't write Erlang code. I don't. We're actually just. Uh, Tinkering with some Elixir stuff as we as we speak. But um and I've never written much in Go besides maybe some um, you know, a hello world. So I'm actually not even a great candidate for asking you the deeper questions, but it always made me wonder about the con- concurrency issues um mm. about that 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 topic there, whether or not, you know, why someone would choose or what kind of applications someone's building that are drastically different that make someone choose Elixir, Erlang, or Go. You know, what what kind of choices does that programmer go through mm-hmm. when they're actually building the application? Like what makes them choose the language? And you know, like with for example, with Ruby, you you know, a lot of the times you are building, you know, systems or for the web and you you're choosing it for the elegance and the readability of the language and the, the developer joy of the language and some of those things that come with it. You know, so what are the reasons why someone chooses go over one of these other languages that have competing feature sets?
1: Right. Well, I mean, I the reasons why like, I choose Go and I think other people choose Go are a, a lot to do with that sort of programmer joy thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, very much uh, the overriding sentiment amongst Go users is that Go just kind of gets out of your way and lets you write code. Um, it doesn't really give you the tools to sort of over-abstract things, and so you tend to just like write the simple code that does the thing you want to do now as opposed to... You know, dreaming about how you might do th- like how you might want to abstract this so you can make it more useful later, which is a a wonderful, uh, very interesting trap that programmers fall into all the time. And so you know, it kind of resists overengineering a lot, but I think the the features that it does provide are very well considered and just tend to work in predictable ways. So you don't really spend time like looking at the language spec or you know, wondering if what you wrote is going to do what you think it does. Um, once you know the language, um, which doesn't take very long, you you really, you just know it and you can just use it.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things I, I pulled out from, to call back to episode 100 when you and Rob were on, was that uh, when they were first writing, I remember Rob saying that he had remembered the entire language and his, you know, he can he wanted to build a language that he can keep in his memory, his Mm, current mm. memory, not, and not have to go back and forth to docs.
1: Well, that's yeah. that's. So, it's not just like at the language level. Like I was talking about to Rob about this recently. You know, uh, recently uh, we've just converted the whole, and I guess we're heading, heading into talking about this. Um, yeah. We just converted the the tool chain from C to Go. So it was originally written in C. Now it's written in Go, and you know, some there have been some criticisms um, from people in the programming community. Saying, you know, are the Go people? They should have just used LLVM, or they should have, you know, built this on GCC or something like that. And the counter argument to that is, we've just been able to do some really very interesting work on the compiler and the toolchain, and there's more, a lot more to come. And part of the reason that that is possible is because it's it's possible for people on the team to keep the entire toolchain in their head. And that is just not possible with some of these larger compiler projects. Like they're so huge. You know, they're massive engineering projects that do a tremendous amount of work. And that is really antithetical to the entire design philosophy of Go and all of the Go tools. And I I think one way to be spectacularly productive is to keep things small enough so that you can know the entire thing. So, yeah, I think that's that's really just a core tenet of of what we're about, and it's been a source of great success for us so far.
0: That's certainly a great transition into the larger talk we'll have here in just a second. So, Andrew, I didn't mention this before the call, but I'm going to take a quick break here and do a spot for one of our, our sponsors for this show. So we'll be back in just a second. We'll talk to Andrew about the state of Go, his talk at FOSDEM, and kind of dive into what we're talking about here, transition to Git, and so much more. So we'll be back in just a second. TopTal is the best place to work as a freelance software developer. If you're freelancing right now as a software developer and you're looking for a way to work with top clients on projects that are interesting, challenging, and using the technologies you want to use, TopTal might just be the place for you. Working as a freelance software developer with TopTal means that your days of searching for long-term, high-quality work and getting paid what you're worth Will be over. Let's face it, you're an awesome developer and you deserve to be composite like one. Joining TopTal means you'll have the opportunity to travel the world as an elite engineer. On top of that, TopTal can help provide the software, hardware, and support you need to work effectively no matter where you are in the world. Head to toptalcom developers, that's T O P T A slash developers to learn more and tell them the change law sent you. All right, we're back. The state of Go in twenty fifteen, Andrew, you've kind of teed it off before we <laughs> took that break there. So, um, sorry, I, I threw you a curveball there too. By the way, it wasn't uh, let me know I was going to do that. But, anyways, so C to Go. You know, when I when I read this in your talk, when I now listening to your talk and reading your talk was two different things. But whenever I heard you talk about the prep work for the C to Go tool chain conversion, I was like, wow, okay, so they're writing and having gone back and listened to episode 100, just to kind of prep for this call, too, to kind of get back into grips with what you and Rob talked about with Andrew uh, on the show before, I was thinking, man, Rob's got to be excited because the the C and C++ programs he had written 20 years ago cannot be ported to Go, and that's not the case. So let's talk about the C to Go toolchain conversion and, and what you actually mean
1: by that. Right. So, you know, originally when Go was first being developed, uh, Ken Thompson wrote, the original compiler in C, um, which he was leveraging a lot of the work of, and the design of the plan nine C compiler, which, uh, you know, is just a standalone C linker and assembler. And it's nicely cross platform, or at least, yeah, it it was in its old form. So that was just kind of an expedient way to get started. And it was a system that they already knew. So they built it in C. Um, And then we've just kind of taken that and, kept working on it for five years. And, you know, it got to the point where uh, we have more and more people working on it and it really wasn't an accessible code base at all. I mean, like, Ken is a tremendous programmer but his code is unlike anyone else's code. And I don't mean that in, like, a negative way. It's not me being sort of snide about it. It's just his mind actually works in a way that is very... Unusual. And so, you know, first of all, there's the the can factor, and then there is, you know, the fact that the code had just kind of grown over a long period of time. And, you know, originally it suited us really well because we were developing a new language and making changes to the language. And if we'd written the original compiler in Go, then we would have constantly had to sort of rebootstrap and update the Go compiler written in Go as we changed the Go language. And that would have been it would have added a lot of friction to making any kinds of language changes. Um, whereas, you know, having it in C, you know, C is the language we understand it hasn't changed for a very long time. This is plain C, not C++. You know, we could make changes freely to the language without having to refactor the toolchain at the same time. And so that suited us really well at that stage of the project. Now we have so many more people working on the toolchain. It's it's about time that we use the nice, stable language that we spent all this time developing. And so you know, we made the decision to convert the tool chain into Go. So not to rewrite. Like if we rewrote, we felt like it would just set us back. You know, you end up in second system syndrome. You end up recreating the same bugs that you've already fixed. We were somewhat hampered by not having a really thorough set of unit tests. Like we have a lot of integration tests, but as a whole, the sort of the, the compiler of was was more or less a black box. We had these tests where we put stuff in and saw what came out. So we decided that what we would do is is convert the toolchain from C to Go. And that doesn't mean like by hand. It means we actually well, Russ Cox wrote a program to convert the C sources into Go, and it meant that work could continue on the C compiler while the trans the the translator was being developed. And when it was time to cut it over you know, Rust could run the translator and check in all the Go toolchain, the, the toolchain written in Go, and then later delete the toolchain written in C. And so this has actually been a, a really huge um, engineering project in a way. But the end result is, like, we we now today have the Go compiler written in Go. At the moment, it's slightly slower than the C version because um, some things that you do in C are much more efficient in C than they are in Go and vice versa. And so we're sort of gradually... Now we have a very ugly Go program, right? Because it's all written in a C style. And so uh, work is now being done to tidy that up and make it look more like a nice Go program. Can you talk
0: about that a little bit, where you go from C to go ugly and then go pretty?
1: Well, for instance, you know, the whole thing, when you converted it, was just one big package because C just has one uh, namespace. Right, that that everyone shares. Whereas Go has these individual packages that each have their own namespace. And so, you know, when you convert C to Go, you just end up with this one big package with like hundreds or even thousands of names inside it. Um, And that's very that's very ugly Go. You know, that's you you would never do that if you were writing Go from scratch. And you know, all of the function names are not really very idiomatic. All the types and so on. You know, In the original Go compiler, there was one big C struct uh, called node that represented like uh, a node in the AST or a node in the generated code, and it, it was kind of like a multi-purpose type that was used at different parts of the compiler. And so it was this huge data structure which included unions, um, which is where you can have a, a struct that has the same kind of size, but it can be used in different ways where... Fields can share the same piece of memory, so you can only use one or the other of those fields simultaneously, and that's not a feature that Go has at all. And so, like when we converted that node type into Go, we had to like explode out all of those unions, and suddenly the nodes were so much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and an interesting issue came up recently, where uh, I apologize if I'm getting this a little bit wrong. I just heard it in passing, but in C, you know, you you declare your variables like up front at the top of your function and then like reuse them and so on throughout the function. And there were all these uh, functions in the C, the C version of the compiler that were very long that had lots and lots of variables. And the number of variables like being used in there was something that you would never see in Go. And so <laughs> the Go compiler, when it was doing registerization for the function to see like which of those variables should be kept in CPU registers for efficiency... It it just saw oh my god there's like a hundred variables in this function, I'm not going to registerize anything, and so these kind of like core parts of the compiler wouldn't use registers to, to do any of the work, and so they just became way slower, whereas the C compiler could handle it fine because it was it was designed to to cope with that, and so it's just interesting. Uh, I think we're going to see a talk probably at GopherCon this year that talks about a lot of this stuff, so that should be that should be a pretty interesting talk
0: yeah and so Russ got started on this. I, I see the abstract that he written for the the overhaul is uh, dated December 2013 so this is
1: yeah, like eighteen months ago almost yeah it's
0: it's a while, so this is an undertaking for sure
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and you know I think Russ is looking forward to the compiler being more accessible to more people so that you know the responsibility isn't on his shoulders so much anymore um, yeah you know we have we have some great people that we've hired at Google. To work on the compiler um, recently, and the and the runtime like garbage collector and so on, and Russ has really been spinning up that team of people, and also there are people in the community who are just really interested in working on this stuff and doing great work. And so far, they've been doing great work despite the fact that it's this really inaccessible C code base. Now that we have this Go code base, that's only going to get nicer. Um, I'm excited to see, you know, what people will do.
0: So I guess we're sort of chicken and egg, kind of, in a sense, because you'll be compiling Go with Go. So if you don't have Go, how do you compile Go?
1: Well, what you do is you download a binary distribution of Go. And when you build Go, you just give it the location of that okay. distribution. It's the same thing as if you build GCC or you know any yeah. any C compiler. You need a C compiler to build the C compiler. I know that... GCC actually has a pretty elaborate bootstrapping process to build itself from something very simple, um, but we don't. We don't have that. The baseline for us is um, Go one point four, so we're requiring that the compiler be written in Go one point four compatible Go, so that if we add new libraries or um, you know lang- language features, even though that's unlikely, but if we add things in Go one point five and above. Um, we're not going to be able to use those in the compiler. We're sort of guaranteeing that the compiler will, will always build with
0: 1.4. You mentioned uh, the garbage collector in there, and I think that you got some something to mention about that as well. So you've got a concurrent garbage collector now. You got new work on that that's going into the going to 1.4. Can you talk a bit about no, that, that?
1: Yeah, that'll go into 1.5. So oh, sorry, 1.5. Yeah, 5. yeah, that'll be like in August. Yeah, there's some really encouraging numbers sort of coming out, you know they they have an implementation of the concurrent collector. So the major distinction uh, when I say concurrent collector is between that and what is the garbage collector in 1.4 mm-hmm. is that 1.4's collector is just to stop the world like mark and sweep collector, which means that um, once your program like allocates twice as much memory since the last garbage collection, um, it triggers a collection, the whole program stops. The garbage collector walks all of the data structures that are allocated and finds uh, data structures that are no longer like accessible by the application code. And then it marks all of those data structures. Actually, it does the reverse. It marks the ones that are accessible. Um, and then it collects all the stuff that's inaccessible, So, it, and then it deallocates them. And that happens quite quickly, but the program does pause while that happens. And so it means... You know, the larger your heap is, the more stuff you have allocated, um, the longer those garbage collection pauses will be, and that can be an issue for interactive applications. Like you can imagine, if you've ever played Minecraft, for instance, you'll notice that after you've been running around for a while, um, there'll be like a few seconds where everything just chugs, the frame rate pl- plummets, and um, you know, it gets kind of awful and janky, and that's because the JVM is, is doing a big garbage collection at that point. Mm. Um, what the concurrent collector in Go will do is it does a lot more of the work um, while the application code is running. And then it's able to incrementally collect uh, unused memory as the uh, by making very, very small pauses in which to do that. So basically you're kind of smearing the larger collection over a yeah. longer period of time. And we're able to sort of specify an upper bound for like the the longest your program will actually pause. So it it still will pause, but the size of the pauses should be um, predictable.
0: Drastically less.
1: Yeah, drastically less. It comes at the cost of some runtime performance. So because obviously if you're collecting at the same time as you're running the program, then the program must therefore run a little bit slower. But on balance, I think. You know, for most Go programs, the net effect will just be a simple positive or just neutral, and then it also makes Go useful for a wider variety of applications. There are some people who have more interaction, more interactive applications, or applications that have stringent latency requirements that just couldn't go near Go because of those. But I think the 1.5 release will really make a lot more possible for a lot more people. and make Go, you know, something that they can actually viably choose as opposed to ruled out simply because of the old garbage collector.
0: And you also talked a bit about the HTTP2 server being in Go. Is that planned for 1.5 as well, or is that, I know you got one point soon, is that?
1: Yeah, probably not 1.5. I think the standard is the standard now, so that's encouraging. But it's probably not ready for 1.5. It's not really battle tested or anything. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Um, it could be, but it's more likely to be in 1.6. But the re- so on the
0: release cycle does that mean the following August or is that spring and, and no, that, sort of? Sp-
1: yeah, that means like like February, six months later. Gotcha. Okay. But the nice thing is, you know, if you write Go programs that are HTTP servers when we do bring HTTP2 support in, they'll just become HTTP2 servers. So you won't actually have to do anything different in your application.
0: There's also a uh, an active development repo out there from Brad Fitz. Is that something that someone can kind of use in tandem and sort of use it before 1.6?
1: Absolutely, yeah. We have a demo okay. site at http 2golangorg where you can, you know, if you have a browser that supports it, which uh, at least... Chrome and Firefox do. Um, you can see what it's like to talk HTTP/2. It, also, if you use Google.com or anything, you're probably already using HTTP/2. Um, not the Go implementation, of course. But yeah, Brad, if you go to GitHub.com/slash/Bradfit/slash/HTTP/2, you'll see um, his sort of work in progress. And it's you know it's pretty solid. It's very very well tested. Brad's very good about writing comprehensive tests. So. He actually found a, a, a bunch of bugs in the spec and other people's reference implementations as he was writing his own implementation, which is uh, a sign that you're doing a decent job, I think.
0: We just had uh, Ilya Grigorik on the show not too long ago. Actually, we were talking about our new nightly email. We ship out this email called All nightly. Is actually the GitHub archive email that Ilya stopped shipping started this year, and uh, Ilya came on the show and said, "I'm an internet plumber." That was his title because he was like, <laughs> "I just I make the internet faster. That's what I do." And he was just talking about the new spec being out there, and it was just a few weeks back, so it was like fresh and new then. Mm.
1: I like think I think it's, it's really cool. New, I mean, right? I think people criticize HTTP two because they they expect it to be some because it's version two. You know, they expect right. it to be something amazing. Whereas I'm happy with just quantitatively better. Right? That's <laughs> that's that's I, that's a great. Uh, goal. If if you can achieve that, then I think you're doing well. Um, and really, I, I feel like it, it was the sort of the biggest incremental step we could take that people would viably adopt. Right? I think some people disagree, but that's my take on it. I, I, if you look at the demo site, uh, which I guess you'll link to, um, there's a Gopher yes. Tiles demo where you get to see you know a whole bunch of images um, loaded concurrently. Over HTTP versus HTTP/2, and you can artificially like add latency to the requests. And um, HTTP/2 lets you pipeline like all of those requests simultaneously, and so you can fire off like you know a hundred GET requests down one TCP connection and then get all of the responses back. And the demo is startling, and I think particularly on high latency connections like mobile connections, it will really make the web a lot better. It's a
0: perfect segue there into talking a bit about mobile. We'll talk about Git here in a bit, too, but let's start with talking about mobile. Um, I know that it's some new stuff happening in, in 1.5, and you've got uh, Android support coming out uh, or deeper Android support, and you also have plans for iOS support. So what is the state of mobile for Go right now, and what are people building with Go in mobile?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's still really nice. And, um, you know, the libraries are still very Spartan and in flux um, I'm not really aware of anyone doing anything serious with go on on mobile at this point um, but what we're hoping to have in 1.5 is a basic toolkit for writing like go programs that run on Android and iOS so you'd be able to write the same go code that runs on either platform and you know there's a there's a huge amount of like grunge work involved <laughs> in making this possible um, which I've been sort of tangentially involved with um, the other part of it that's really cool is we'll have this go mobile tool, um, that when you, uh, it's a bit like the go tool, you can just say, you know, go mobile install and it builds your app and then uploads it to your phone. And, you know, if you're familiar with either the Android or the iOS tool chains, you know, you, you know how painful that can be. Very. Right. And so, and so, mm-hmm. you know. I personally look forward to the day when I can actually do mobile development because I simply don't have the time to just like get into that and figure it out. You know, it it would take me way more spare time than I have. But I have all these great ideas about little games I want to build or, you know, little tools. You know, I would I would be writing lots of programs for my phone that I use all the time, but I just (laughs) don't have the time to actually learn how to make that work. So Yeah. I'm very excited
0: about that. Yeah, it's it's, it's funny because um, over the weekend, um, or I guess this week too, but over the weekend we had some family in, and just a sort of a side story on on the desire to to do some gaming. i never really thought that I would ever have a desire to build a game, but when I was sitting there with my niece, um, this is not a plug, uh, and they're not paying us to say this, but uh, CoolMath-Games.com was pretty neat. We went there on our on the on the iPad. We were just sitting there, just playing games for you know like an hour or whatever and i was just thinking like here's this little impressionable kid loving these games and she doesn't realize that you could build these things with html css and javascript and it's pretty you know some css animations and stuff like that Um but going a little further to actually build an app part of it you know is what you're talking about but i never really had that desire to build a game yet mm. and that was the moment where i had this moment where I'm like i wish it was a little easier to jump into that or i'd Sort of learn that. So,
1: well, I mean, maybe even in the web world, like it's insanely complicated to understand HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. You know, we've a lot of us have grown up in this environment, and so we've kind of learned all we've wrote, learned all of the stuff we need to know to be productive in that environment.
0: Yeah,
1: um, I spent a lot of time as a web developer, you know, before I was at Google, and. I think it's it's astounding really the complexity that we put up with. And so you know, one of the things I'm excited about this this Go on Android and iOS stuff is we'll have these simple toolkits for doing stuff like putting images and text on the screen, moving them around, animating them, handling user input, handling audio, and it would be a nice little environment that just works, right? And I know there are similar projects in other languages and so on. Go's the language I like using. So obviously this appeals of course, to course, right? But um, and you gotta
0: take what's happening elsewhere and bring it into your camp. That's how it works. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors when we come back. We're gonna dive deep into Go's transition to Git from a curial. Uh kind of hear about the details behind that. A lot of a lot of details shared, and I got some questions for you there, Andrew. So let's take a break, we'll be right back. And we'll, we'll, we'll go through that. Over 400,000 developers have deployed to DigitalOcean's cloud. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider built for developers. In 55 seconds, that's all the time it takes. You'll have a cloud server with full root access and it just doesn't get any easier than that. Pricing plans are super inexpensive. Just five bucks a month for half a gig of RAM, 20 gigs of SSD drive space, one CPU core and one terabyte of transfer. All DigitalOcean servers run on SSDs. That means they're blazing fast. They have Tier 1 bandwidth support and come with private networking. Use our special link to get a $10 hosting credit when you sign up. Head to the slash DigitalOcean to get started. And now back to the show. All right, we're back. Uh, so, Andrew, I think it was a hot topic for you to kind of cover anyways, which was the transition to get. I know it made headlines. Um, Well, it made made (laughs) hack-a-news. Well, I mean, what are headlines, right? It's good stuff. It was in your talk, so that's a headline. Yeah, Um, I mean, in retrospect... I was excited to hear this, too. I think everybody else was, but it also, you know, in the wake of that, you hmm. know, how long has it been since the transition to Git?
1: Oh, well, a few months, I guess. It was December, so a couple of months.
0: And so then the next question that came on the minds of those... We follow Go and obviously follow Google Code was like was that did you all know about Google Code or is that just by happenstance? Oh no! Google like code...
1: of, of course, of course we knew um, as a team because you know they're going to tell like their biggest clients about it in advance. But you know, like in a way, um, our transition to GitHub was was kind of part of their preparing um, this automated migration tool. Um, that they've now given everyone access to. So, you know, they, so if you don't know, they shut down Google Code and now there's this one-click tool for um, migrating your project from Google Code to GitHub, which, you know, it's pretty nice. It works pretty well. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean... yeah. And, and the team were really adamant that they didn't want to announce the deprecation of Google Code until they had the plan totally worked out, they had a tool that worked, you know, that they were able to make the, the process as painless as possible. And so we wanted to make the jump to coincide with the very beginning of our development cycle. So our our uh, release was for the 1st of December or the start of December. And um, we really wanted to make the cutover directly after that. And so, yeah, we, we did make the transition sort of motivated by the impending shutdown of Google Code. But really, I think... All the reasons that we gave at the time were genuine. Like there are a lot of good things about making the switch to Git and GitHub, and Garrett. Uh, but yeah, if if it wasn't going, if Google Code wasn't going away, maybe we wouldn't have done it. I mean, it was a tremendous amount of work, and you know nobody wants to do busy work.
0: That's what I'm curious you know. though, because you got some pros and cons in your list here that you talked about in your talk. But I, as I was listening, I'm like, there's something deeper into that story there. And obviously, we know now that Google Code is sunsetted, so yeah. there had to have been some reason there. So t- you kind of throw a nugget in there of whether or not you may or may not have transitioned if Google Code didn't move away.
1: Oh well, it's, no, it's just that you know I spent like two months of my life dealing with this problem of trying to seamlessly migrate all of our stuff from one service to another, and it's not something that I would have chosen to do. <laughs> like if I had an option not it's to like
0: torture, right?
1: Well, it's I mean it's just it's just work that I that I could have not done. And I I like, I don't, I feel like we're in a, we're definitely in a better place now. So, you know, I don't really feel bad about it. Um, and I, you know, I respect the reasons for Google wanting to shut down Google code. I can totally understand that as well. I think, you know, like, like Chrome was, um, or even wave, I guess, was like a, a reason to try and shake up like you know, the world of web browsers or the world of, like, online collaboration. I think Google Code was really, you know, at the time, if you remember, like, SourceForge was the thing. Yes, yeah.
0: Um,
1: and SourceForge was terrible, you know, so bad. And Google Code was, like, just this breath of fresh air. And it made it, I think it made a lot of people realize, oh, hey, you know, we can build better, like, open source code hosting sites. And that paved the way for, like, GitHub and Bitbucket and other services of that nature, and so, you know, it kind of it served its purpose. And you know, it's it's obviously no secret now that it's it's not the place to be for open source projects now. You know, GitHub seems to be that place now. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't feel bad about it. That's for us it's mission accomplished. But there's something that people think is better. They should be using that. When Google Code came along, that wasn't the case.
0: Well, this transition for you guys wasn't uh it was a lot of your life, but it's not a big deal for your, it is a big deal. Sorry, reverse uh, analogy there, but it's a big deal for your contributors. So those who actually contribute back to Go or fork it and try to push pull requests, we we'll get into that in a bit. But um, but it's not so much important for Go users. So nothing's changing with Go. It's just a matter of yeah, it's, how you actually track versioning.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's purely a project's process, development process. How you do things. Yeah, and like. the and the you know the only really like end user facing thing is they use the GitHub issue tracker now rather than the co- Google Code Issue Tracker. And that actually is generally better for our users because most users are more accustomed to using GitHub's issue tracking system.
0: Something you had said um, in your talk was that it was a steep learning curve for, for coming from Mercurial to Git. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Facebook back, I think about a year and a half ago, so I think almost the last time you're on the show, uh, they had made a choice to move, uh, or a choice of Mercurial or Git and they chose Mercurial for speed reasons, but you chose Git, do you think it's mainly for, because of Google Code, obviously, but then also because of GitHub and the community? Or is it Git itself that attracted you?
1: I wouldn't say I'm particularly attracted to Git, nor am I particularly attracted to Mercurial. The main reason we switched to Git is that the code review system, Garrett, is built on Git. And Garrett... That, um, is partially maintained by people at Google, and there is you know a team at Google that supports Garrett instances for Googlers to use like so they use it on Android extensively, and you know if if it's developer infrastructure that is supporting Android, we know it's not going to go away. Like our code review system, Reedfeld that we were using with mercurial, um, we were the, we were basically the last people maintaining the instance that we were using. It used to be used by a lot of people. <laughs> and so um, we, were, we didn't really want to be in that position anymore. We wanted to be using something that was well-supported by um, a team of people working full-time on making sure it works. And so the Garrett team were already doing that for the Android people, and so it just seemed like a natural choice to, to go with that. And there's a lot to like about Garrett. It has its rough edges, but it's definitely um, a superior tool to what we were using before. And so it was really Garrett that motivated the choice to switch to Git, and then once we decided to switch to Git, um, GitHub seemed like the obvious choice for hosting our issues. Mostly, it's mostly GitHub is mostly just used for hosting issues.
0: What uh, What role does Garrett play in this process of building Go and maintaining Go?
1: Well, it's it's the code review system. Sorry if I wasn't clear about that. So um, every single change that goes into Go is reviewed, and Garrett is the System that web a web based code review system that we use to look at the diffs and um, leave comments, uh, upload new revisions. So they're like pull requests, but the workflow is a lot more focused on doing detailed code review. Um, You know, I find that you know, GitHub's pull requests are not very well suited to paying attention to all of the details. You know, I find it very hard to um, to sort of keep track of different revisions of a change. So you know, as you're working on something that's coming in, you know, you'll make changes based on reviewer feedback. And GitHub makes it very hard to sort of see like what changed from between one revision and the next. It also you know, forces you to do things like look at all of the files that have been changed in one big fell swoop. And actually probably the most crucial thing that that I like about Garrett and the other code review tools that I've been using in the past is that when you're reviewing something, you make a series of comments on all the code, like on lines and so on. And then when you're you've you've done the review, you then send all those comments as one big atomic thing. And it, and it comes as one mail message, and then the 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 author of the code responds to those messages. Whereas on GitHub, I start commenting on the change and the, the, the author of the code is already receiving my comments by email like and so if I get halfway through the code and I'm saying like oh why did you do this here like this is confusing and then I get to like the next file and it's like oh I totally understand why you're doing this now and like in Garrett I could go and delete those old comments or edit them but in GitHub I suddenly have to like Send more comments to the author and say, "Oh, oh, oh!" Noise. Ignore, yeah. ignore my ignore my other comments. You're like, I didn't mean that. I understand now.
0: Meanwhile, they're giving you a deep dive and they're wasting their time coming back. Like, no, I fixed that down here, and you're both crossing wires. Yeah, and
1: you know, I think I think that that approach, like, it probably works for some people. It probably works for people on small teams. Um, but like, I do dozens of code reviews a day, and there are people on my team that do more. And you know it's crucial that the process be as efficient as possible, and there are just too many inefficiencies in the GitHub way. So that's, that's why we didn't go with pull requests, essentially. Um,
0: as, that's another mention I want to mention here is, why don't you accept pull requests? And we're kind of answering that, so I won't ask you that directly. So let's sort of roundabout answer that. My thought is, is that like you use Garrett because it gives you a better user experience around could review accepting, you know, pull requests that aren't actually GitHub pull requests, but you know, reviewing code changes and for the reason you just mentioned there. But if GitHub improved their pull request processes to let's say match the Garrett process, let's say that became the new GitHub way, would you stop using Garrett?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheticals in that question, right?
0: Of course, yeah. Um, Plus, you got the CLA or the yeah the CLA is involved in there, so the Contributor's license agreement that is part of contributing to Go. Yeah, we actually things are happening.
1: Yeah, so licensing is obviously important. Uh, we need to make sure that um, the people who are contributing code actually give the project the license to use that code. That's an important legal protection for us as the project, and it's important legal protection for our users as well. And with Garrett, you know, you can't actually send a change until you've signed that agreement electronically. Um, And so that's nice. It means that if I'm reviewing someone's code, it means that I actually legally am allowed to look at that code and submit it, right? On GitHub, uh, there's no sort of uh, built-in support for that, but we do have this Googlebot that we can enable for projects that when a pull request comes in, it checks whether the GitHub user has signed the CLA. And so that's not actually a problem for us using GitHub. I have a couple of projects, like the the code base for godoc.org, the the Go documentation website um, that is hosted on GitHub and I use pull requests for reviewing code because that predates the transition of the main project to GitHub. Yeah, um, and I use the Googlebot for processing CLIs there and it works fine. It's it's great. But look, I could I could imagine like if, if GitHub was able to give us a workflow that was, I guess it would have to be better than Garrett at this point because we're not going to just change things <laughs> again. But it yeah, would right. definitely be preferable. You know, I don't like getting pull requests on... Because, incidentally, there's no way to disable pull requests on right. GitHub. So, like... Um, you can't opt out. You can't opt out. And I, I don't like having a contributor send a pull request and me having to say, I'm sorry we don't take pull requests.
0: That Yeah, that's a bummer, too. I almost yeah. feel like there should be, like, if you're not going to... Not so much turn them off, but point them elsewhere. Yeah. You know, so, like, this, if someone forks it and sends a pull request or wants to do it through the process... Rather than going through the GitHub way, it points to, say, a different public URL through Garrett or something else that still gives you the same abilities, just not using native GitHub.
1: Yeah, I I would love if if, if anyone from GitHub listening, you know, there are a lot of small things that could be done to provide essential information to contributors early. Like, if you put a contributing.md file in your project root, when a user goes to file an issue, they see a link at the top that says... Please read the contribution guidelines before filing an issue. And that's that's nice. I would actually prefer it if they just showed the contributing file, you know, on the on the issue filing page because our contributing file is very simple, but it says like for instance, if you're filing an issue report, please tell us these essential pieces of information. And you know, on Google Code, we actually had a template, you know, it would say what version of Go are you running? What platform are you running on? What did you see? What did you expect to see? What did you do? There's kind of like these five essential questions. Um, And not having that template in the issue tracker means we get less informative bug reports and they require more handling and more follow-up, which means that they're less likely to get addressed. Uh, And with the pull request thing, as far as I'm aware, the the contributor doesn't get shown that, that link to the contributing doc when you create a pull request. And, you know, the essential line in that doc is we don't take pull requests. Here's the contribution process. And so, you know, I feel like if GitHub would just surface that contributing file more readily in these processes, we could really, uh, you know, reduce the double handling that happens for a lot of these issues and reduce frustration. Because I think, you know, our contributors, they want to contribute in the way that works for the project. You know, Um, nobody wants to be doing the wrong thing. Um, but I think it's frustrating and you know, upsetting to people when they think they're doing the right thing by sending a pull request and then they're told, sorry, that's, that's not the way we do things. And they can't be faulted for not knowing that. But at the same yeah. time, like you know, I get tired of, of telling people the same thing like every, every day or two.
0: I think it's, it's surprising, though, when you have a, a disclaimer saying we don't accept pull requests. I think you got to put a parenthesis in there and say "kinda," you know. It's it's not exactly true. There's some steps that require, like, the CLA being signed to hand the rights over to the project and whatnot. So I, I think it's just kind of funny that you said, you know, we don't accept pull requests, but it's not it's not exactly true. Well, it, kind no, it,
1: true. it is it is strictly true because we accept contributions, but they're not in the form of pull requests. Pull requests, right?
0: Yeah. I think. I almost feel like those are interchangeable terms to a degree. I mean, I know GitHub coined the phrase, but because open source is becoming more and more in the public's eye, GitHub is the place where people think open source happens. You know, so to the untrained hacker eye or developer eye, I'm trying to erase hacker from my my lingo, because it's just not inclusive. I want to be inclusive to everybody. Um, but anyways, you know, to to the untrained developer eye everyone else thinks that GitHub is sort of the epicenter, which it, you know, reasons you're there too with uh, with Go is that it's become the place where the community is. And so to send a pull request is like saying, I contribute. And so that sort of becomes the, the somewhat interchangeable terminology, at least, at least in my opinion. Well, you know, uh, I, just,
1: I just hope that GitHub takes the feedback from people like us. And, you know, we're definitely not alone. There's a lot of people who have similar issues with, you know, their pull request system. And I I hope that, you know, they take this on. And, you know, being the kind of de facto center of the open source world, I I think they have a responsibility to respond to these kinds of requests. But, you know, ultimately they are a business. And personally, I don't believe that um, it's healthy for everyone to have this kind of dependence on, one large business. And obviously working for Google that might sound somewhat ironic coming out of my mouth. <laughs> but yeah, a little bit. But, but you know I feel you, I know what you mean. I I am a big fan of running your own infrastructure. Um, I think it makes sense to use infrastructure provided by other people where it makes sense. But you know, I'm a contributor to Brad Fitzpatrick's Campley store project, which is all about reclaiming control of your content. And you know, you could it's a storage system for things like photos or basically any kind of files or anything. And, you know, you can run it on, on cloud storage or S3 or whatever, but you can also run it on a server in your basement. And you can do both. You can synchronize it between both things. And I think it's, you know, I think we need to build systems that break our dependence on large organizations. And so, yeah, I mean... I hope people don't forget that Git is not GitHub. You know, Git is an open source tool that anyone can use to host source code anywhere. Um, and I hope people don't, you know, I hope it's not quite true what you say about people thinking GitHub equals open source because... Um, well,
0: I don't it, think that, yeah. that exactly means it equals, but, you know, when they think open source, they think, well, is it on GitHub? Oh, then it's not open sourced. You know, that's that's, it's not the truth, but... To the untrained eye, it, it starts to become truthy because anything that's happening around open source tends to be pointed back to some sort of github.com slash URL.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, kudos to GitHub for building something people really love. Um, and I think they've done a great job. But i I think it's really important, particularly in the open source community, for everyone to remember to be self-reliant you know, I think that's that's a really valuable thing, and it's kind of a core tenet of of what open source is about.
0: Let's talk a bit about. Uh, we don't have much more time here. We got maybe like eight minutes flat. Probably probably less than that since we've actually gone over time a bit. But let's talk about uh, Go one point five is releasing uh, August August twenty fifteen with your new release cycle. Uh, no C code will be in one point five. You've got some new architectures you're supporting. PowerPC 64 and maybe the ARM 64. Now, when I saw this, forgive me, but the question I asked myself was, what types of machines are running on PowerPC 64 and ARM 64? Because I guess I just never think about what my my machine is running. I run a yeah. MacBook and whatever they give me, I I just you know, uh, I just use it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, I know it's not PowerPC because they went to Intel until a while ago. But so, what is the PowerPC 64 and ARM 64 uh, architectures?
1: Right, so. Places a consumer would see ARM is obviously phones. Um, And ARM64, the big ARM64 platform is the iPhone. So everything from the 5S up is an ARM64 processor.
0: Okay.
1: And um, I think Apple won't actually let you run 32-bit processes on some of the newer iOS versions on the ARM64 processors. So for this go mobile stuff to work you know we need to we need to target arm64 so that that's what arm64 is about um, there are probably some people doing um processes in a, in the server environment but I'm not really aware of them powerpc64 is something i don't have a lot of visibility into but i know that you know there have been contributors from um, companies like canonical who are who are pushing that support as well as just other people in the community and people from google you know powerpc is is an IBM um, processor architecture and um so i think the PowerPC 64 machines are very very high spec multi-core server machines and so they're the kind of kind of processes that you you wouldn't have much to do with as like an average developer um, but i think it's it's possible that we'll see them making inroads into the server market i'm not really I don't really have a lot of visibility into it, but I think it'll make some particular sort of enterprise customers happy.
0: And I, if you're trying to supplant Java, then you've got to do that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the Go toolchain has been a cross-platform thing since the very beginning. Um, and part of the rewrite actually has made it much, much easier to support other platforms. Like the actual... Uh, architecture-dependent part of the tool chain has gotten smaller and smaller over time. And now it's actually quite small. So we just we just want to support Go everywhere that we can. Um, and if there are people willing to help contribute that support, then we'll happily help them do that.
0: Let's talk about the builder infrastructure real quick. I know we don't have much time, but uh, I was really impressed by Gomote and the mm. Google, Google Compute engine. So talk a bit about the... The uh, Google Compute Engine and Go and what you were doing there. That was that was pretty amazing.
1: Right. Well, so the basic backstory is, you know, since Go is so cross platform, we need to test it on all the platforms that we support. And so, you know, we have this sort of homespun builder infrastructure, um, that you know, we have a build dashboard and we have these these machines, like this heterogeneous array of machines that are all around the world, like Mac OS machines. Linux and FreeBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, Plan 9, Windows, and all these machines run this Go binary that like fetches our latest revision of Go, builds it, runs all the tests, reports the results back to the dashboard. But you know, maintaining this array of machines is total pain, right? It's it's they're all different, they all work differently, they're all owned by different people. Um, you have to like email someone <laughs> when something goes wrong. And then if you have a problem on a particular architecture, you, know, you need to um, get access to one of the builder machines to be able to actually test your code on whatever that processor and architecture is. But so Brad Fitzpatrick mostly and a bit me have been working on some new builder infrastructure that uses Compute Engine. So for all of the, all of the operating systems that we can, we're running those on virtual machines on Compute Engine. And so we have this kind of like deterministic build environment that we can spin up at will. And so we can do many, many more builds in parallel than we could before. And also now we can do we can do speculative builds. So if someone sends a change, we can run uh, the try bot on it, as we say. So you get to see whether the change builds before you actually merge it into the tree. Uh, and so that's been really nice. Um, currently works for like Windows, Linux, uh, FreeBSD, and a couple of others. Um, but... Uh, we look forward to doing something similar with macOS. It'll be a little bit different since we can't run that on Compute Engine, but we have plans for how that might work. Um, but a nice side effect from that is we have this tool called GoMote, where if you're a Go developer and you see that your change breaks on like OpenBSD, um, you can spin up an OpenBSD instance on Compute Engine with just one command line invocation and then you know push your local changes to that machine, run them, see what happens... And, you know, you get to actually sort of develop on the architecture that you're trying to support. And, and then you
0: don't have to actually have a bunch of VMs sitting around or actual machines if that's the route you choose to go if you're a developer for Go. Then this makes it a little easier to yeah. sort of build, you know, write code for many, but uh, not have to actually own those machines.
1: Yeah, the re- one of the really nice side effects is uh, we'll be able to make this available to Go programmers in general. Um, so...
0: This will be free to, to anyone who's developing for Go?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you can just like um plug in your own Google uh cloud project uh credentials and then it will spin up instances on that you know that you pay for. Um right. but you only have to pay for the like you pay by the minute. Um so it's like fourteen it's pretty cents cheap. or something maybe. Yeah, yeah. Probably less even for for an hour or something. But um so it, so it means that if, if you're a Go programmer and, and, you know, you want to test your stuff in other places, um, you should be able to do that pretty easily. And also, I think it's just a nice kind of demo of cloud orchestration stuff. Although, you know, yeah. there, there are a lot of tools in that sphere. Um, I don't necessarily recommend writing tools like this. For us, it was kind of an experiment to see how our cloud libraries were and ways in which we can make that better. Um, because obviously, you know, the Go team here at Google, we have a close relationship with the Cloud team at Google, and we're very focused on trying to make, um, you know, Go the best language to use on Google's Cloud platform and also other cloud platforms. And so, you know, we've 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 found a lot of weak points, things that we want to improve. Um, and you know, part of building this project was uh, was just seeing how good our offerings are. You know, we're pretty happy with it, but obviously, you know, we find things that we want to improve, and we're working on those too.
0: All right, last question before we go into a couple of the closing questions, which are really short, but I, I can't let it go without asking this question, which is you've been here twice now. Was it? Has it been three times you've been? No, it's been uh, twice. Rob was on way back when, and then you were back with Rob on episode 100, and then now you're back here for episode 148, and it's been a year and a half since you've been on the show. So what is the future for Go? Like you got this last... At one point four to one point five we're shipping later this year what what beyond that? Where are you seeing past like one six or or beyond
1: I really think you know as far as like the Go core is concerned, you know it's going to get faster it's going to run in more places it'll be more efficient you know better optimization in the compiler, um, optimization in the libraries, you know improvements to the tool chain, maybe you know some new sort of developer tools, um, that kind of thing. But I, I, I think that you know the most exciting developments around Go are really in the greater Go community. And actually one thing that I'm involved in is a project called Go GoKit, um, which uh, a guy called uh, Peter Borgon from SoundCloud has initiated. And it's an open source project that's basically trying to build a standard library for building distributed systems. So it's kind of described as like a toolkit. Um, the, the purpose is, you know, if you want to build distributed systems in Go, so a lot of the, a lot of the, this, the cloud services that people build are basically distributed systems. And there are, or, or, or people often call them like microservices. You know, you have um, many services that talk to each other via RPC systems, if you know what I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. But ba- basi- <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically um, GoKit is, is trying to define like a set of things that people need to build these kinds of systems and then provide like a canonical sort of set of recommendations or even like libraries and interfaces that, you know, various tools and and libraries can satisfy so that, you know, you can have a well-integrated developer experience for building distributed systems in Go, and so that's that's kind of like the goal. You should check out Peter's talk um, "Go in the Modern Enterprise," which he gave at Fostem, uh For for and the we're linking that vision. up in the
0: show notes, so yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have that talk in there. Yeah, you know, speaking of Go Kit, we were actually wanting to have Peter on the show, but I wanted to have him on after we talked to you mm. to kind of get an update on where Go has been at for the last year and a half and what you've been doing so I wanted to have you on there and I didn't know you were working with Peter on this so it might make sense to have you back on with Peter if that's the case yeah
1: well when I, you know, when I saw his talk it really, I was like oh my god you know, he's just really clearly articulated a lot of the same things that I'd been feeling about Go you know, we really need to focus on making this work um, he called it like the modern enterprise which is sort of these you know, medium sized companies that are building you know, these distributed systems um, and I, I feel like Go is a great language for those companies, but they, we, we really need to focus on making it clearer and easier for people to make the right choices when building those kind of systems. And also, I think there are a lot of people in the Go community working on these problems, and we've actually seen it with GoKit, you know, when it was announced, a lot of people joined the GoKit project and they were like, oh, I've been working on X. And the number of people that had kind of all been working on the same X in parallel... It's like, oh, we should just focus those energies together on the one thing. And so, you know, there's an RFC process in GoKit where, you know, we take we take um comments from everyone and um, try and arrive at some kind of consensus. And so I'm I'm really excited um for how this is gonna turn out. I think I think it's really promising. Um Peter's a really sharp guy. I really appreciate his his sort of thoughtfulness and also his taste. I think his his taste aligns very much with the the taste of the Go project and, and sort of what that's all about. So I, I feel like that element of Go's community is sort of in good hands with him and that project. And so yeah, I've been yeah. I've been trying to to contribute. I wrote a a uh, API stability policy, um, which is sort of centered around sort of versioning package management side of things. But um, I, I think you, I think you should definitely get Peter on the show and talk to him because he's uh, always interesting to listen to.
0: Hmm. We definitely do. I know we cover that in uh, in our weekly email. I'm not sure which one, but we share so much stuff in Change Law Weekly that it's just hard to even remember what we shared and when. But I know we covered GoKit because I was pretty impressed with that, and especially knowing knowing that I wanted to have this conversation with you and sort of ask you that same question, which is you know what can programmers anticipate for. He coined it pretty well, which is the modern enterprise, but the workplace, you know. So if you're anticipating to supplant Java and those kinds of, you know, those kinds of projects in enterprise now and Go is going to take over that, then, uh, you know, GoKit makes sense mm. totally.
1: Mm.
0: All right. Well, definitely, would you be interested in coming back on the show to with Peter or is that something I should have Peter come on his own?
1: I guess you should ask him. <laughs> I, right. I would be more than happy to, though. Gotcha. Um, okay,
0: so let's let's close up the show then. I got a couple of questions for you to close up the show. Some that are uh, typical that we like to ask, and then uh, that's that's how it goes. But um, one of our favorites, and it certainly helps, so you can kind of answer this as deep as you like to. It's kind of one part, which is how can someone step into the Go project? Either it's learning Go, or it's contributing back to Go. Or supporting the efforts that you're doing and the rest of the team's doing, although they may not be Google employees, but how can one be uh, an open source contributor? So, what's a good way for someone to step into Go? Where are some needs in the Go community right now that people can step into?
1: I really, my general recommendation when I'm asked this question is just to you know, solve problems that matter to you and then share those solutions. Because programming language is way at the bottom of the stack. And so everything that happens above there in that language helps that language. And so, you know, if you want to sort of get involved with Go, you just need to start using it and then, you know, sharing what you've learned or what you've made. Um, and and that just helps everyone.
0: All right. That's a good, that's definitely a good answer. And, I, you know, I, actually I kind of lied. It's two more questions, but one's really easy for you. Um, this one, maybe not so much, but definitely a good answer, I'm hoping, from you, which is, uh, you know, what's on your open source radar? I can imagine that Go is completely your radar, but let's, you know, whichever direction you want to go, but if you had a weekend clear and you didn't have anything planned and you were like, I'm going to hack on something, what would it be? Would it be Go or would it no, be something else around
1: Go? There's a project that I've been working on for an embarrassingly long time that I've been neglecting lately, um, which is called Sigourney. It's a, an audio synthesizer, uh, yeah, it's 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 a modular synthesizer. So, you know, you you the, it's similar to environments like uh, Max MSP or Pure Data that that people may have used. Um, but basically, I have a, a actual physical modular synthesizer, which is a you you have various modules that like produce waveforms and then filter them and then you know multiply them and so on. And you connect the modules with patch cables, like actual physical patch cables, and then it makes sounds that some people might describe as music. And um, you know, I wanted something similar, because I travel a lot, I wanted something similar for when I'm traveling around. And I also wanted to learn about digital signal processing. And so I started sort of building this thing from first principles, made a lot of progress pretty quickly, um, but then I've kind of stalled on it. So definitely if I had... Some free time and probably more importantly, some like free space in my brain to think. Um, I would I would probably hack on that.
0: Kind of reminds me a little bit of this thing we covered uh a while ago, which has probably changed its name since, but um I think it, I think it pronounced it Kievel Host. K-I-E-V uh, yeah, K-I-E-V-L-L host. If that rings a bell I haven't to heard you. Of it, no. Yeah, it's like a you know, digital audio. Uh, workstation kind of thing, and it does similar stuff where you connect different things and patch things together. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a
1: lot of amazing work being done in like the electronic music making uh, world. You know, there's a hu- it's a huge cottage industry. People making both hardware and software, so it's really exciting time to be doing that kind of thing. And you know, uh, I might get some your last question now if I recall correctly, like what would I be doing if I wasn't working on Go? Um, Yeah. And the answer is, you know, I would definitely be working in, in audio hardware and software.
0: So speaking of audio, um, you would like to hack on that if you weren't working on Go. What's one of your favorite podcasts you want to mention here on the show?
1: Um, So yeah, my friends, Mike Bernstein or MRB and um, Aaron Quint, um, they do a podcast called Beats, Rye and Types. And it's about music, uh, like food and drinks, and uh, programming languages and programming in general. And um, yeah, they're just a couple of like a couple of guys from you know the East Coast of the states. I feel a great affinity to them as, as people. So like listening to them talk about all these topics that I'm very interested in is uh, is always entertaining.
0: Absolutely. I got, uh, obviously I have a, a bug for audio, so, and you mentioned that you might want to do a podcast, so if you're a listener and you were, you know, stuck on that, give him a, give Andrew a props on Twitter or yeah, something, you, I don't
1: know. if people think that tell I should him, do a podcast, you should tell me and that'll make it more likely. I started doing these screencasts <laughs> with Brad Fitzpatrick called Hacking with Andrew and Brad, um, and that arose because, you know, I thought, you know what, I should, I should stream some programming sessions. And, you know, people... Like, the response on Twitter was overwhelming. They were like, hey, you know, yeah, I've watched that. That'd be great. And so, you know, Brad and... Eventually, Brad and I got together and did one. Got some great feedback. And then we just did a second one not that long ago. And we're looking forward to doing another one soon.
0: Is there a list of those somewhere? Because I'll link it up on the show notes if there is. Yeah,
1: if you go to youtube.com go coding, Okay. Um, there's a there's a a playlist of those two videos, which obviously we'll add more to when we make
0: them. Nice. All right, we'll link this up in the show notes for sure. Well, I know that I've taken you much longer than I expected. As a matter of fact, my clock says we're 29, 29 minutes over time. So thank you for not getting angry. And if you're a listener and you're still listening right now, thank you for listening all the way to the end. It's kind of hard sometimes, though, when you come into a conversation that's about the state, of go and and there's a lot to talk about we did have a little bit longer intro than i thought we would have but you know hey that's that's how it works out sometimes i'm just glad you're a good sport with it and you're not upset but you are almost getting kicked out of the room so
1: (laughs) i happy always happy to talk about girl
0: all right andrew well let's uh let's say goodbye to everybody and thanks for coming on the show today man i appreciate it
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: bye andrew